Welcome to our exchanges at Goldman Sachs Markets Update for April 9th. Each week, we check in with leaders across the firm to get their take on what they're watching in the markets. But today, we're doing something a little different. We're sharing a client call that was hosted by our chairman and chief executive officer, David Solomon, alongside other senior leaders who discuss our view on the pandemic and the resulting economic impact. In addition to David, you'll hear from Andrew Tilton, chief Asia economist for Goldman Sachs Research, Todd Leland, co-president of Asia Pacific X Japan for Goldman, and Jan Hatzius, chief economist for Goldman Sachs Research. Now, over to that discussion. We hope you find it informative. Thanks very much, and welcome, everyone. We've got clients from around the world joining us today from many different parts of the economy, and we're excited to have all of you with us. My name is Matt Gibson, and together with Anthony Gutman in Europe, we run client coverage within our investment banking division, and we are hosting this call together. We have had a series of these client calls in the past four weeks, and in each case, the objective is to help arm our clients with the information that they need to make the decisions they need to make, whether that has to do with obtaining near-term liquidity, obtaining long-term funding, thinking about what an economic recovery might look like, or communicating with shareholders on Q1 earnings calls and everything in between. We have a great lineup of speakers today who together will cover global markets, the economic recovery, running businesses in this environment, and what things will look like on the ground in Asia. Allison Mass, who's our chairman of investment banking, will start today's conversation by moderating a discussion with our own chairman and CEO, David Solomon. After that, Anthony Gutman will host a Q&A with Andrew Tilton, our chief Asian economist, first, and then Todd Leland, president of Goldman Sachs Asia. In that Asia discussion, we want to marry both economic views and a sense from, quote, on the ground, so that you all have a perspective on how Asia is recovering and getting back to work. And to finish off, I will host a Q&A with Jan Hatzius, who is our chief global economist, where we really want to get at his view on the economic recovery, what he's looking for in terms of signposts in the next few months, and so forth. As we embark, I would just remind you this call is for clients uh, of Goldman Sachs only. And with that, Allison, I will hand it over to you. Thanks, Matt. And David, thank you so much for spending time with us. Um, I know you wanted to say a few introductory remarks before we get started. So why don't I turn it over to you? Okay, well, thank you, Allison. Uh, good morning, um, everyone who's, uh, who's on the call. Um, you know, I don't have a lot to say from an introductory perspective other than to welcome you to the call. Uh, thank you for joining, and thank you, obviously, for the, uh, the partnership we, uh, we have with all of you. Uh, I know that everyone uh, is facing challenges. We're all facing challenges, uh, and I hope that the Q&A and the discussion uh, in some ways can be helpful as we all try to navigate in this, uh, this new world for all of us. So, you know, I'm delighted to be a, a part in participating and, uh, and look forward to the questions of the discussion. Okay, so David, what I wanted to begin with is by asking you um, if you can share with us what you're focused on now and how that has evolved over the last six weeks. Sure. So what I'm what I'm focused on now uh, is 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 really kind of where we are and how we're going forward from here. To put that in context, I have to say what I was focused on, uh, you know, six to eight weeks ago was was quite different, and particularly when the crisis accelerated 
uh, in the United States in the earlier part of March and markets weren't functioning very well. Uh, there was a significant amount of focus just on the functioning of markets, on dealing with regulators uh, and Treasury on a daily basis just to work through the process. And this really would have been kind of the week of March 9th and the week of March 16th just to work through the process of getting markets to function because markets really were not functioning very well. We're kind of past that. And so now the focus obviously can be uh, furthermore on the operation of our business, which first and foremost is about taking care of our people and planning for a path forward. And of course, while markets were not, focused, were not functioning, there was a lot of focus on our people back at that point in time. But my particular focus, I had a you know, terrific chief operating officer that was very, very focused on what we were doing for our people at that point in time. My focus was really more on the functioning of markets and risk, just given the way we're, we're, we're positioned with our balance sheet. And so now I think we've settled into more of a routine where you can start to plan and look forward a little bit. And so the focus has shifted. So I, I know you spend a lot of time with our clients. And when you talk to other CEOs, what are their primary areas of focus right now? And how, do you, how does that differ depending on their industry and geography? Well, it's, it's very, very different for different businesses. And I'd start by saying the universal discussion um, I've had with, uh, with every CEO I've talked to over the course of the last six weeks. And my guess is I've probably you know, spoken you know, directly on the phone with, with over 100 CEOs uh, for 15 to 30 minutes, just kind of talking about all this and trying to learn, trying to provide advice uh, or counsel. But first and foremost, everybody's focused on their people. But one of the things that's just been very interesting for me is the differences in organizations and you know, how, to, how to think about you know, people and those people issues. We happen to be an organization that's in a position where we can have 98% of our people working from home. So in a global organization that operates in 45 countries around the world uh, with, with 38,000 people, we have approximately 800 people today that are physically in an office somewhere at Goldman Sachs in our network. Uh, the other you know, 31,200, uh, I'm sorry, 37,200 are operating remotely or operating from home. Well, lots of people who are running businesses with factories are producing. We had a global town hall this morning where Alan Jope, the CEO of Unilever, participated on the, uh, on the call. He's obviously running factories all over the world that have to continue to produce home products, food products, et cetera. And so he's got to think about you know, the care and safety of employees you know, in those environments while continuing to operate the business. And so the challenges range depending on the nature of your business, but it starts with everybody's focused on, on the safety of their employees and trying to make sure that they're, they're handling that uh, appropriately. You then get into, you know, I think, a, a focus on planning. And for all of us, you know, every business has a plan. Every business had a plan for 2020. Whatever your plan was for 2020, it's been ripped up. And so now there's a focus on what I'll call short-term planning and trying to really understand you know, how am I going to get through the year? What do I have to worry about to get through the year? What do I have to protect to get through the year? And less of a focus on medium or longer term plan. And so a lot of the dialogues are trying to understand the economic impact, uh, the timing impact. And these are, these are things that are hard to quantify and hard to know based on where we currently are. And obviously are different in different parts of the world. Yeah, and that leads me to my next question, which is, how do you think CEOs are going to handle the coming earnings season with respect to areas like guidance, given business planning has changed, uh, and strategy and capital allocation? Well, I think, it's, I, I think many companies, you've seen many companies already 
um, have uh, have you know said that they won't be given guidance or changing their guidance, their guidance policies. And I think that'll continue. I, th I think you have to look this as a look at this earnings at the moment and the way companies operate in 2020 as a bridge to something that's going to be beyond. And I don't think the market uh, now, especially with this upcoming quarter, uh, expects a lot out of companies in terms of really being able to clearly articulate what the cycle or the path will be for their business, because candidly, it's, it's unknown. And, you know, especially for global businesses that are operating and dealing with this in a global context, uh, it's, it's unknown. And so I think there's a lot of latitude uh, to be very candid and very direct about what you know and what you don't know. So I'm going to pivot to ESG. You know, what are your perspectives as you talk to all of these CEOs about how they're thinking about ESG during the crisis? And have you seen any change in strategy? Um, and also, how does that compare to how you're thinking about it? Well, I, I, you know, I think, I, I think you have to I think you have to step back and, and, and rise at some level and put this all in context. And I'm not, you know, I'm not, I'm not a health expert or a medical expert. Um, and I don't, you know, I'm talking to a lot of health experts and medical experts to frame this. But I think a good way to think about this is that most people believe that sometime in the next, you know, 18 months, two years, we will have a vaccine that can be scaled and distributed. And so we will eradicate this virus. So what we're, what we're dealing with in some way, shape or form is managing businesses through the bridge of that. And the bridge doesn't have to look like it looks you know, today at this point in time, um, but we're not gonna go back to, a, to the normal that we all experienced you know, at the end of 2019 until this is really eradicated in some way. There'll be lots of changes in behavior and lots of adaptation. So when you talk about big picture strategic things that are things that are, people are focused on over the course of the next 10 years, and, and certainly ESG is one of them, that strategic focus is going to continue, but it's not going to get the same amount of attention on April 9th as it will get broadly when you have the time to kind of step up above and think much more broadly from a strategic perspective. That said, one of the things that I would observe that's just very interesting is I see private sector companies everywhere, all over the world, spending a tremendous amount of time focused on what they can do to help support people in the communities that they operate, what they can do to help provide support in fighting the virus. And so, you know, the focus on other stakeholders and the focus on kind of using the platform to do the right thing, I think, has never been higher. And so, I do believe in the long run, it's a strategic imperative to think broadly about the environment, to think broadly about the social impact of business, to think broadly about governance over business and how, governance, how, how business supports not just shareholders, but also stakeholders broadly. I don't think that's going away, but I think it's going to get a different level of attention while we're in the height of a crisis. And we're in the height of a crisis. And so, you know, it doesn't deserve the same level of attention. There are a lot of things that don't deserve the same level of attention when you're at the height of a crisis. Okay, can we pivot to talk about the role of the banks right now, you know, both as a lender and provider of liquidity? And how would you assess that it's working overall? And do you think that the role of banks could be even more supportive of a recovery? Um, 
Well, the, 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 banks, the banks are a transmission mechanism of capital um, into markets in a variety of different ways. Uh, as a result of the financial crisis and as a result of changes um, in the regulatory oversight of, of banks broadly, banks uh, are capitalized differently, are structured differently, and operate differently than they did prior to the 2008-2009 period. The result of that is banks are extremely well capitalized and have extraordinary quantities of liquidity. And that leads the banks at this point in time to be quite financially strong, which has allowed them to all grow their lending activity and grow their balance sheets right in the initial few months of, uh, of this crisis. Um, the issue that, um, that you have to wrestle with, or we have to wrestle with as, uh, as, a, uh, as, a, as an industry in concert with our regulators, but it's really a societal issue that the regulators have to wrestle with. The structure of the regulatory construct leaves the banks operating with an enormous amount of liquidity and huge capital and liquidity buffers. And the purpose of that was to make the banks really safe and really strong. The issue is, it's at a time like this, you'd like the banks actually to use some of those buffers, that excess capital and that excess liquidity, to put it into the economy to support other businesses. And the regulatory structure doesn't allow for that. Um, so the regulators are thinking about how to, and they've done some things, and they're thinking about doing more, how to encourage, somewhere between encourage or, or strongly encourage, the banks to use more of their buffers to continue to grow their balance sheets and put more liquidity in place. But doing that also has, has political consequences because there are those that would say that there's no way that we should do anything that in any way, shape or form reduces the amount of capital in the banking system. Um, you know, I think there's an in-between or there's a balance that can be struck that allows the banks to grow their balance sheet at a time like this while still making sure they're very, very safe and sound. So to put it in a simple perspective that you could think about broadly, in 2008, Goldman Sachs was a company that had a $1.3 trillion balance sheet. We had $35 billion of equity and about $70 billion of cash and liquidity. Uh, in March 2000 and, uh, and um, 2020, Goldman Sachs is a company that has a $1.1 trillion balance sheet approximately. Um, has $83 billion of equity, give or take, and has about $230 billion of cash and liquidity. And so we could certainly operate with lower cash and liquidity and slightly more leverage on our balance sheet and still be fundamentally safe. But if we don't get the flexibility to do that, we probably can't. We've grown our balance sheet uh, a little bit during the course of this, but we probably can't grow our balance sheet further. And so at some point in time, that constrains or you have to pick and choose, you know, where you deploy your capital. And so we're in active discussions with regulators trying to find the right balance, because I think the banking system can do more to support businesses, large and small, if given a little bit more flexibility. Um, thanks, David. Is, you know, one thing I want to go back and talk about, you, you mentioned your thoughts about the post-pandemic environment. And do you think that there will be lasting changes on the way we live our lives and conduct business? And you, you talked about going back to normal, but what will be the new normal in your view? Well, I, you know, look, I, I, there's going to be a lot of speculation about this, and, 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 um, and I think it's great to 
speculate on because it's interesting, but it's, it's, it's purely speculation. And I'll, uh, of course, there's always evolution in our society and there's always change. And how could we not go through something this significant as a society and it, it not lead to change? I mean, there, there are all sorts of things from a business perspective that are obvious to me. Businesses have been driven you know, entirely for efficiency. Supply chains have been built for efficiency without thought of consequences. There's going to be rising nationalism because of this on a global level. Supply chains are going to be nationalized in certain places where we'll sacrifice efficiency to have you know, better supplies in a time of stress. So there's going to be change to business in all sorts of ways that people are already starting to wrestle with. But in terms of how we live, you know, I'm, I, I don't know, but if you wanted me to speculate, I really do believe we will beat this, we will eradicate it, we will get to the other side. When people feel safe, they will, broadly speaking, go back to living the way they want to live when they feel safe. And the, you know, the best data point you know, that I can, I can point to just in my own experience to look at this is I was, I was in lower Manhattan during, uh, during 9-11. And I remember you know, in the months after 9-11, where behavior changed very, very materially in terms of how people flew, how people traveled, how people thought about being you know, in urban centers because people were concerned or scared um, about the risk of, uh, the risk of terror. Um, it, you know, it materially changed behavior. But over time, as it was clear that things were being done that made people feel safe and secure, the behaviors reverted. And you know, I think my own view, and it's obviously I could be wrong, and this is only a guess, and it's one person's personal opinion, is when we get to a place that this is behind us and people feel safe and secure, that broadly speaking, the result of this will be better preparedness, better change, other things that protect us. But in terms of human interaction, and kind of the desire we all have for intimate human react, you know, interaction, you know, I, don't, I, I think very quickly we go back to something that looks you know, similar to what was. Now, of course, there'll be changes. We'll learn from this. In business, there'll be lots of efficiency. I know every CEO I'm talking to is, is saying, if we can have all these people working remotely, what do we learn? What work is not being done now because it's not necessary? And so is it necessary at a different time? There are all sorts of things to think about. But in terms of, of the way we live, my own view is when people feel safe and secure, they'll go back to living the way they want to live. Okay, speaking of safety, um, the back-to-work debate is top of mind for everyone right now. And how are you thinking about that for us at Goldman Sachs? So we're, we're, um, we're doing a lot of planning. And as I said, you know, we have 98% of the people not, not working from home. I, I actually am working from, uh, from home. I actually um, have been and continue to go to my office at 200 West Street every day. It's very weird walking into a building that normally has 10,100 people in it and having only 60 people in it. I would say it feels like the safest place I can be because it's 2 million empty square feet, um, which, uh, which gives you, you know, lots of room to move around and have plenty of physical distancing. Um, but, um, but first and foremost, we're very, very concerned about the safety and the well-being of our employees. And we also, we, we want them to be comfortable. And so there's a, there's a balance here. There, there are certain critical functions that when we get, I think, over the course of the next few weeks, we'd rather have certain critical functions uh, you know, back in the office, you know, particularly around things that have to do with the movement of money um, that we've been doing remotely and, and, and maybe certain trading functions. But that's hundreds of people you know, in an organization that has 37,000 people working remotely at the moment. Uh, we are thinking about ways that we can make our environment safer. 
One of the things, obviously, that I think is very important to opening up the economy more broadly is that we make progress on the access and the availability of testing. And so, you know, we're thinking a lot about how that's going to progress and how we'd have direct access to it and how we can think about, you know, using testing. And I think lots of businesses are thinking about this as testing becomes more readily available and accessible to make, uh, to make your business environment safe. I've spoken to a number of CEOs that are operating businesses and factories where all employees wear masks all the time. And so, you know, we're thinking about what kind of role masks can play um, in, a work, in, a, in a workspace with more physical distancing for a services business like ours. But ultimately, I think this is going to be a gradual process. It relates to the trajectory of the virus and how under control in the short run during the summer we get the virus. And then also creating a, you know, a safe environment where we can get more people back into work. Um, but I think that we're going to have to operate for you know, a meaningful period of time with real physical distancing and lots of flexibility around this um, as we start up certain parts of the economy. And so obviously, we're you know, planning all different scenarios that, that we think we could operate in while trying to get more people physically back to work. Okay. So lastly, David, um, I know this and is travel, a challenging Allison, environment. I'm sorry. For Allison, I'm sorry. Just travel for our business, for a big portion of our business, it's, you know, until people are comfortable traveling, that's a real, that's a real issue in the way we operate. And so that's still, I think, a ways away. Yeah. Okay. Um, so lastly, um, I know it's a challenging environment for all of us. So tell us a little bit about what you do to unplug and recharge during this time, because I know how important that is to have that balance. Um, well, it's a challenging environment for everybody, and everybody's got their routine. I was just on another call where a town hall, one of our employees asked this, and you know, my routine feels like the Bill Murray movie Groundhog Day. You know, these days, it's you know, most days are the same. Um, I get up, I do, I do work out every morning, uh, first thing in the morning. Um, you know, I'm lucky enough to have a a, a gym in my apartment, um, but um, but you know, my my weekday is really centered around Goldman Sachs, being in the office, being on the phone. I do come home at night um, and uh, and cook some dinner and you know usually watch a Netflix show. I'm watching The Outsider, by the way, which I've seen two episodes. I think it's pretty good. Um, but um, but really, you know, the the time to clear my head is more on the weekend. I uh, most weekends, uh, even though the weather's not been great in the New York area, uh, I'm out on my road bike, um, all bundled up. I'm hoping the weather will get a little bit better. I'm also going find myself going for long walks, you know, two and a half hour walks which really give me by myself, which really give me an opportunity to clear my head and, uh, and think about stuff. But my kids are grown, so I have different issues, you know, in terms of communication with my kids. Um, but for others that have kids at home, you're dealing with homeschooling, uh, you're dealing with, you know, having the family, you know, all in one place, you know, that creates a whole set of complicated issues uh, that, uh, that are very, very challenging at this point in time. But I to me, you know, it's exercise and just opportunities to think and clear my head, you know, that are helping me keep the routine going. And, you know, let's, let's face it, we've been at this kind of full bore for a relatively short, short period of time. Um, and so, you know, I, it, 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 it's not the way any of us want to live, but we have an obligation, uh, you know, to continue to do the best that we can and, uh, and try to find the right balance. So that's, that's the way I try to live. Okay. Well, thanks so much, David. Um, really appreciate you sharing your perspectives with everyone. And now I'd like to turn it over to my partner, Anthony Gutman. 
Thanks a lot, Allison. I appreciate it. And thank you all, and good luck to everyone, and please stay healthy. Great. Allison, thank you. David, thank you for joining us. We're now, as Matt touched on, going to spend a little bit of time with some perspectives from our colleagues in Asia. So I'm going to start firstly with Andrew Tilton, our economist in Asia. Andrew, if it's okay with you, let me start with um, your perspectives on where China is on the infections curve. You know, we've seen a recent pickup in infections in places like Singapore. Maybe you can touch on that and you can you talk to us a little bit about the evidence for the risk of a second wave and how that's being managed in, in Asia at the moment. Sure. Thanks, Anthony. Uh, and welcome, everyone. The new, new cases have come down dramatically in China over the past month on the back of a really unprecedented set of measures to limit the spread of the coronavirus. In China, we saw extended Chinese New Year holidays, restrictions on movement and travel, complete lockdown of Hubei province. At one point, there was an estimate that more than 700 million people in China were living in communities with some sort of mobility restrictions. So it was really a dramatic set of efforts and largely successful, it seems, in bringing down the number of new cases quite dramatically. Um, In recent days, the reports suggest between 50 and 200 new cases a day, most of which are categorized as imported, which means the infected person recently returned to China from from international travel. So now that we're seeing that progress, the Chinese government is beginning to ease some of those measures including the official end of the Wuhan lockdown as of, as of yesterday. There's still some localized lockdowns, you know, buildings within Wuhan, uh, a, a county in an adjacent province are locked down because of some cases there, but broadly measures are easing. Um, I think though, you know, one lesson we can take away from this, uh, from the experience in China is just how hard it will be to really completely eliminate the virus. After all, even after unprecedented measures and a 10 to 11 week lockdown in Hubei, there's still some, some infections being reported every day in China. But the good news is this is a, a relatively small number you know, compared to the huge population. And it's, it's clearly possible to move back some distance from a total lockdown, uh, even, even partway, at least before the virus is, is gone. Uh, and you, know, you mentioned the second wave and, and, and Singapore. I think elsewhere in the region, you know, in most of Northeast Asia, and, and, and I add Singapore to that, appeared to have a good handle on the virus two, two, three weeks ago. But recently, we've seen a significant pickup in new cases in a number of places, and imported cases seem to have been a driver of that, particularly in Hong Kong and Singapore, where there's so much international travel. So people came back, people who were residents in Hong Kong or Singapore came back from overseas, and, and some of those people brought infections with them. So each of, each of those cities had only around 200 cases a few weeks ago, three weeks ago, and now each has had cumulatively more than a thousand. And and both uh, both countries are uh, both both cities are tightening up both on border controls and on on social distancing measures. Um, so that's that's really shifted quite dramatically um, as as both places try to get uh, a handle on this new. Uh, resurgence in infections. Still quite low relative to the overall populations, but nonetheless uh, prompting a significant uh, tightening in social distancing measures. In Singapore now, you're not allowed to invite uh, other people to your home for the next few weeks. Uh, You're only supposed to head out for essential trips, uh, broadly speaking, or for those people working in, in, in occupations that have been labeled as essential. Great. Thanks, Andrew. 
Why don't we um, let's just focus now a little bit on the recovery. So obviously the eyes of the world are on China and the shape of the economic recovery there. It'd be great just to hear some perspectives from you on data points as to what the shape of that recovery um, is looking like um, and some perspectives to the extent you can extrapolate from that data to what that means for recovery in the Western world. Well, China was first in in terms of having the first big decline in economic output, which bottomed out in February. And we think it's also going to be first out. We're already seeing improvement in a number of economic indicators. And I think this can give us some hints about what we might you know, ultimately see elsewhere. Um, at, the, at the low point in February, many economic indicators were 30 to 50 percent below normal uh, and, and are now, again, beginning to recover but really from, from very low levels. We expect to see sharp contraction in overall economic growth for the quarter. Uh, we, we're forecasting minus 9% year over year, which would be the worst quarter in China since at least the 1970s. On a, on a better note, we're seeing uh, number, most of these indicators with respect to economic activity improving over the past few weeks. Um, Industrial activity is really leading that. Supply side constraints are loosening. Transportation restrictions are easing. Migrant workers are getting back to factories. And especially in the more state-dominated sectors of industry, we're seeing activity get back to you know, two-year-ago levels or close to year-ago levels. For example, steel production is back to the levels of a year ago. Power usage is up near those levels. Air pollution, unfortunately, is also back up towards more typical levels from where it was a few weeks ago. The main challenge for the industrial sector is now on the demand side, with the rest of the world sharply declining um, in terms of economic activity in the second quarter. That's going to hit Chinese exports pretty severely. On the services side, we're also seeing an improvement in activity, but it's more gradual. Uh, so, for example, passenger traffic or intercity traffic is picking up. But there are a couple factors here. You know, part of this may reflect households being a little risk averse and wanting to be cautious in getting back to their normal activities. But part of it clearly also reflects um, authorities' concerns about a renewed outbreak. So, for example, some movie theaters had started to open and were ordered to close again. There was some concern about tourist attractions potentially overfilling with people wanting to get out after having been uh, in, in their homes for long periods of time. So I think we're seeing a kind of balanced and gradual reopening uh, of a lot of service sector activities with a view to avoiding a significant resurgence in infections. Despite all that, we do think China is going to post strong growth in the second quarter and, 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 and make positive growth for the full year. Uh, and, and, and broadly, while every country is different, we think that that general pattern uh, a couple of months of really, really deep session, and then a, re a relatively rapid recovery out of that. Uh, we, we think that pattern can play out in a number of countries in the region. And Andrew, just linked to that, what do you, what's your expectations as to how China will continue to develop fiscal stimulus to support the recovery? Well, I think as, as background, I, so we, we, we certainly think there's going to be a meaningful stimulus in China, but as background, uh, the Chinese authorities have been trying in recent years to limit the degree of stimulus they apply to the economy. They've been more focused on controlling 
leverage, controlling debt, limiting systemic risks, trying not to overdo it on stimulus. Uh, having said that, you know, the deterioration in the, the Chinese outlook and the global growth outlook is so severe that clearly they need to ease policy. And recent senior level policy meetings, including the Power Bureau and State Council, have made clear that more easing is on the way. Uh, you, you mentioned fiscal. We really think that's where a lot of the heavy lifting is going to be done. We've seen an uh, increase uh, in the, the so-called local government special bond quota, which is used to fund infrastructure spending and a front-loading of that quota. We also have heard talk, although it's not been confirmed in the details, heard talk of a so-called national special bond, which has only been done a couple of times before. And on those occasions, it was used to recapitalize banks, although it doesn't necessarily have to be used that way this time. I think the important point is that they're talking about doing things they've only done in, in very extreme circumstances in the past, and, and that suggests a willingness to ease policy quite substantially. We think they'll ease the, the what we call the augmented fiscal deficit by about five percentage points this year. Uh, it's important to note in, in, in China, the official deficit doesn't tend to move a whole lot. It will it will widen, but, but a lot of the action ha happens off budget, and we certainly think there'll be a lot of fiscal support there uh, for the for the year ahead. Maybe also worth noting that we don't see uh, a big easing in the property sector, nor do we see uh, have we seen a, a large depreciation in the currency. We don't think they're going to focus on those areas as uh, the, the routes to stimulating the economy. They're still concerned about property sector excesses. And while that might be a useful uh, and effective tool to stimulate the economy in the short term, uh, I don't think they'll, they'll use that unless they absolutely feel that they need to. On the currency, there are obviously concerns both about US-China trade, but more broadly about keeping the currency stable in times of stress. Um, so we don't expect to see significantly more depreciation in the currency. Andrew, just to finish off before we touch on a few things with Todd, just talk to us a little bit about broader regional trends. It looks like the virus is beginning to take effect in India. Can you talk us through data there and your expectations for the impact in India and, and more broadly? Sure. Uh, in, in India, there's been uh, a, a huge increase in focus on the on the coronavirus over the past few weeks. Um, at, as of as of now, we've had uh, a little over 5,000 5, to 6,000 infections. Obviously, uh, confirmed infections. I should I should clarify. That's obviously a, a significant number. Still still tiny in comparison to India's population, but but suggesting a meaningful outbreak. Uh, anecdotally, we haven't seen a large stress on India's hospital resources so far, um, and 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 there are really pretty different views out there about how serious this is going to be among epidemiologists and others. The optimistic view is that maybe warmer weather or other factors have reduced or will reduce the rate of transmission in India and make it uh, not as serious of an outbreak. The more the more pessimistic view is that there really hasn't been that much testing so far, so it's hard to know how many people are infected, um, and there it may be just that the virus arrived a little later there as well, given fewer tourism links with with, for example, China. Um, the policymakers, for their part, decided to do uh, a, a serious lockdown. It's a three-week kind of hard lockdown 
confining many people to their homes and, and, and limiting, limiting the degree to which people could go to, to the workplaces. So that suggests they certainly have concerns about a more pessimistic scenario. And we, uh, we're two-thirds of the way through that. We're two weeks through that three weeks, that three weeks right uh, as of now. Uh, and there's already discussion of potentially extending that, which uh, you know, brings me to another point. In general, uh, these lockdowns and social distancing measures have almost always been extended beyond the original time frame all over the region. It's taken longer to bring about the desired reduction in infections uh, generally than, than initially expected. Um, so given, given what we've seen there in India and, and uh, the, the lockdown that's now in place, uh, we've cut our growth forecast pretty substantially there. It looked at the beginning of the year like India was on its way to a recovery after a period of pretty challenging uh, economic growth. Uh, but we've we've cut our numbers from about 6% growth, which is our expectation at the beginning of the year, to around 1.5% right now. That would mark the worst year growth-wise in India since, uh, since 1991. Andrew, thank you. I'm going to switch now to Todd Leland, who's joined us. Todd, you co-run our banking business at Goldman's in Asia. Can we just start by understanding from that vantage What's happening across our offices in the region? Um, where are we in terms of colleagues being back in the office? You know, the period of lockdown, and just generally how you see our operations there, and the relevance of that, of course, to the broader uh, the broader audience we have on the phone. Great, thank you, Anthony, and good morning, good afternoon, good evening to everyone. Uh, I, I too would like to preface my comments uh, with wishing everyone good health and, and to you and your families. Uh, I'd also like to preface my response uh, by indicating that I do believe our experience is very similar to many of our clients in the region. And so primarily services industry, and yet experiences are fairly similar. I'd also remind everyone that Asia is a vast region. It's just discussed by Andrew. It's, it's a vast geographically, politically, as well as culturally. And our experience as a firm in addressing COVID-19 has, has been very Similarly diverse in our approach and our experience in the region, we start started combating the virus in China in January, uh, and went to work from home in China fairly quickly in February. And whereas the rest of our region really remained largely unchanged until March, and it wasn't until later in March that we went to work from home in Korea, in Hong Kong, and Singapore, and Australia, and the rest of the region, and only recently in April that we went to work from home in Japan. So uh, again, a very significant difference just given the geographies as well as some of the, the, the norms in those societies. An unfortunate component of this was that while we thought Asia was relatively contained, in fact, of note, when Goldman Sachs in the US and Europe went to work from home prior to most, uh, went to work from home prior to most of our operations in Asia, and so there was a belief that things had been fairly contained. And as Andrew had indicated, it, 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 it's a commonly held view that the rise in global travel that occurred in March with many people returning back to Asia, returning home from the U.S. and Europe, it's that spike of travel that led to the resurgence in cases across Asia. So, again, we've seen a bit of a good and a, and a bit of a setback in the region. In term of, in turn, uh, I think there's really two lessons we could take from Asia that have re particular relevance to the rest of the world. 
The wind's very short and succinct is that the risk that this virus can re-emerge. Andrew made the point on his discussion, but that's a very real experience right now in the region. Second, and importantly, hopefully on a more positive note, China's recovery, while not not perfect and not complete by any means, it does provide hope that things can normalize in a relatively short period of time. Uh, This week, China recorded the first day where there were no fatalities since the end of January, and the lockdown and travel restrictions were lifted in Wuhan, the epicenter of the outbreak. And as Andrew indicated, it's not perfect. There are certain parts of the the, uh, Wuhan area that are still in lockdown. But by and large, it's opened up. Business and shops in China have opened with people leaving their homes and going back to work, all in a measured and very systematic way. At at Goldman, we have reopened our offices in China. And so while closed in in early February, we reopened them on March 18th, allowing a maximum of 25% of our staff to be in the office. And like others in China, are people returning to work, but it's in a very controlled and a measured basis, trying to mitigate that reemergence of, of the virus. But, but nonetheless, businesses are coming back online, which is a constructive, constructive signal, hopefully, for all of us. Many of our clients indicate that businesses are operating at around 70 to 80% levels in China, with some businesses operating at levels approaching 100%. So again, getting back online. I don't mean to suggest, and I really want to emphasize that things are back to normal. That's not the case. Uh, but there are signs of hope in the trajectory of what we see occurring in China. So oh, thanks. Just um, switching a little bit to our corporate client base in Asia, you're obviously spending a great deal of time speaking to CEOs. What would you say is on the mind of CEOs generally, and are there signs in their in their businesses that they are getting back to business as usual? You touched a little bit on seventy to eighty percent recovery levels, but just give us a sense of the type of discussions you're having right now. Anthony, I'd, I'd break that response into three parts if I could. Uh, first, and I think this is really reflective of the comments made by David, and I think we hear this uh, consistently. So I apologize for some degree of repetition, but most management teams started with a focus on the safety of their people. And like I'd expect that many of you have done or are doing, um, you know, our clients are seeking guidance on human resource policies and services to support uh, their employees and their families. We've also seen significant focus on finding ways for companies to support their communities locally, nationally, and globally, a, a truly humanitarian effort. I think it's critical at a time where we see this around the globe, that governments are struggling. This is an overwhelming circumstances and situation, and governments are overwhelmed with it. And I think that the corporate community should uh, play a leadership role and take pride in our ability to reach out and support what is was obviously critical for all of us. Second, companies uh, are focused on their expected path to recovery. I think perhaps in certain parts, obviously in China more so, while we've had, had other elements of clampdown in other parts of the region, uh, people are focused on the path to recovery and, and a lot of conversations. David, David evidenced that relative to Goldman Sachs globally. We spend time on that, and we see our clients spending time on that. Of interest, a survey conducted by our, our research team in China shows that most Chinese consumer companies expect a recovery in the second quarter of 2020, with businesses to be back to normal or near normal in May or June, and that they expect a full recovery in the second half of 2020. 
Now, I do think there's a difference about being open for business and what the activity level is for those businesses. But nonetheless, I take that as a constructive sign of getting back uh, to business. Third, I comment, and I think this is a critical element for Asia, that while clients are confident about the path forward in Asia, they're increasingly concerned. In fact, I'd say extremely concerned about the rest of the world's ability to combat COVID-19. And in turn, are concerned about the global economic outlook. Obviously, a deeper or prolonged economic downturn would have an immediate negative impact uh, on, on most of businesses in Asia. So that, that is also top of mind. So I think those are three high points. And the latter one, we'll look forward to uh, Jan Hasius in a minute who will provide us uh, with his views on the global economy uh, and, and what the consequences could be. And then you can reverberate that back to Asia. Todd, one, uh, one final question for you. Can you just give us some perspectives on US-China relations? Clearly, there were tensions um, heightening before the virus, and the virus has clearly escalated those tensions. But what's your perspective on where things go from here? Yeah, Anthony, I'll stay away from too much political frame on this. I, I would only say that it does seem that both US and China have moved over the last two weeks to tone, to atone um, to tone down the rhetoric on COVID-19. Uh, our sense is that incentives remain on both sides to preserve the phase one trade agreement. And recent actions bear that out. U.S. trade representatives have praised China's adherence to, agri to the agricultural policy uh, of trade targets and China's implementation of its, of its commitment to the opening up of financial services in China. So two strong messages that, that indicate a commitment to what has been agreed. Our, as a firm, we obviously strongly support a U.S.-China cooperation, not only on virus response, but also in addressing the economic challenges which will, will result from it. And although everyone is rightly focused on <clears throat> U.S.-China relations, most of our dialogue with clients is focused on supply chain and global dependencies in China. David made reference to this at the beginning. We have, in many ways, focused on efficiencies, and, that, and yet I think that those efficiencies will come to a question and there will be a focus on nationalism. Prior to COVID-19, the supply chain dialogue was probably centered in large part on, on specific technologies, and as we all know, in particular, intellectual property rights. COVID-19 has elevated the dialogue in a number of other areas. A, a good example, perhaps an obvious example, is global dependencies in the healthcare industry. Many of the world's uh, product trials are performed in China, and similarly, a significant portion of the world's medications, medical devices, as well as uh, we all now know many uh, of the fast, uh, face masks are, are sourced from China. So uh, an expansion of what gets brought into that concern and focus about supply chain and global dependencies. I would also maybe close, Anthony, on a constructive note as China recovers Many companies within China are looking for ways to help others around, around the globe in battling COVID-19, uh, including the simple provision of much-needed masks and other medical supplies. Companies are doing so, I believe, with two, two things in mind. One is to help their friends around the globe, as well as to, in fact, bring a, a positive light uh, on China in the context of what's happening as clearly a global pandemic. Great. Well, look, let me thank both um, Todd and Andrew for joining us on this call um, today. It's been great to hear your views. And let me hand back over to Matt. 
Thanks, Anthony. And thanks, uh, Andrew and Todd. I think that was an interesting walkthrough, both economically and, you know, sort of markets and companies on the ground. And certainly something for us in the Western world to kind of watch uh, as we hopefully, you know, repair and recover. So I'm going to turn now to Jan Hatzius, who I mentioned in the beginning is our chief global economist. With our remaining 10 minutes, uh, we're going to do a quick lightning round here. And I think, Jan, where I want to start is at this point, when do you see the economic recovery taking place in the U.S., and at what pace do you see that happening? Uh, thanks, Matt, and uh, great to be on the on the call. Um, so before I get to that, uh, uh, you know, just to level set where we are right now, in April, we think that uh, U.S. GDP is going to be down about 13 uh, percent from where it was in January. Uh, and similar numbers for other advanced economies. Uh, and frankly, I think the risk to that number is probably, if anything, on the downside. Um, but having said that, after April, I think things are likely to get incrementally better, uh, with an emphasis on incrementally, um, basically for, for two reasons. I think there, there are going to be two things that will uh, change. One is that I would expect some adaptation to the existing restrictions in uh, in a couple of sectors, um, you know, via greater distancing in uh, in factories uh, and on on building sites uh, that are uh, still uh, still operating and, and viewed as essential, uh, and po potentially some changes in. Um, uh, in public hygiene and uh, and personal habits, um, so mask wearing, uh, I think could uh, you know basically uh, uh, facilitate some economic activity that's now not taking place. Uh, and then the second one is that uh, over time, uh, maybe in the in the course of May, we are likely to see some gradual easing of the restrictions. Um, so how, how does that translate into the economy? Uh, on a monthly basis, our expectation is that the level of output in May is a, a bit better than in April, um, and June is a bit better than in May. Uh, second quarter as a whole, we think, is still going to be down very sharply from the first quarter, um, about 10% on a not annualized basis, uh, which translates into, in the U.S. case, uh, a 34 percent decline at a, in, at, on an annualized basis, uh, so taken to an annual rate. But then in the third quarter, uh, we think we'll get into clearly positive territory. Uh, now, one question that often comes up is, is it going to be a U-shaped recovery or a V-shaped recovery? And I think that really depends on whether you focus on the quarter-on-quarter -quarter numbers that uh, macro analysts uh, use or the year-on-year -year numbers that uh, uh, maybe microanalysts are more likely to use um, on a on a quarter-on-quarter -quarter annualized basis. Um, it looks, uh, I think, pretty V-shaped to a lot of people. We've got the third quarter at plus 19 percent quarter-on-quarter annualized, and the fourth quarter at plus 12 percent. Uh, but I think it's important to keep in mind that on a year-on-year -year basis. Uh, Q3 in our forecast is still about 8%, uh, still down about 8% from a year earlier, and Q4 is still uh, down uh, 5% from a from a year earlier. But we do think uh, a recovery 
uh, will ensue before too long and will will um, uh, you know make up uh, a lot of the lost ground, though probably uh, not all of the lost ground uh, until sometime in uh, in 2021. And, and then, as you look at that, Jan, what are the what are the key economic variables that that you watch for that the clients on the phone could sort of pay attention to, as to whether the recovery is happening on that schedule as you go through the next few months? Is there is there daily or weekly data that you're peeling through to to update your views? Yeah, so I I think economic variables uh, have to be broadly defined in this environment. I think a lot of the Standard monthly or quarterly economic indicators are not going to be particularly timely, um, and a lot of them include uh, a lot of assumptions and imputations that make them less useful at a time like this. Uh, so, what are, what are we watching? You know, first and foremost, of course, uh, we are watching the the medical news, um, and. Uh, in our view, the, the reason why the global economy is in such a deep slump is the virus and the, a large part of the solution is going to be to get the virus under control. Uh, and while the news there continues to be uh, really quite harrowing in many places, including uh, right here in New York City, uh, we've seen some incrementally more encouraging numbers over the, the, the past week or so uh, in a couple of respects, uh, new confirmed cases have been uh, somewhat more stable uh, or, or lower in many places in, in Europe in particular. And some of the forecasts uh, have been surprised on the downside or uh, revised down. Uh, Dr. Fauci, uh, the government expert on this, was on the tape today. Uh, with some encouraging news on uh, cumulative fatalities. Uh, so it seems like the, uh, the incremental news here has been, has been better. Um, the second thing um, on the list for us is uh, really market functioning. And I would also say that the news on that has generally been better, largely because of the aggressive actions uh, from the Federal Reserve and other central banks uh, we publish a daily market stress monitor that looks at various dislocations in the fixed income, foreign exchange, and equity markets. Um, and by that, I really mean not just low prices or wider spreads that reflect the, uh, a worse economic outlook or a worse earnings outlook, uh, but actual problems in market functioning. And um, in that uh, daily monitor, what we've seen is that while there clearly still are dislocations, uh, a lot of them have come in uh, a decent amount, and some have disappeared entirely. Uh, and then finally, on the economic indicators, what do we watch? Uh, first and foremost, I would say the weekly jobless claims numbers. Um, that's a, an indicator that does not have a lot of imputations in it, and it's uh, very up-to-date, uh, re released five days after the week to which it refers. Uh, and there, unfortunately, uh, in contrast to maybe some of the virus news and market functioning, the news remains very grim. We just had another massive number this morning. We've now seen about 16 million initial jobless claims in the last three weeks. Um, so our view is we're on track for uh, an unemployment rate, an overall unemployment rate uh, of at least 15% uh, 
by over the next next few months. Um, and in fact, if we look at an expanded version of the unemployment rate that, that also includes people who want a job but aren't actively looking, uh, we are at uh, 26% um, by the middle of the year. Uh, so uh, really unprecedented job losses, come, and that's something that we'll be watching very closely. We will need to see these initial jobless claims numbers come down meaningfully over the next, um, say, four to six weeks uh, to suggest that we really are bottoming out in, in activity. So uh, that's, that's um, you know, high up on the list. The, the, the other you know, more standard indicators will eventually become more useful again, uh, but I think right now they're just too dated. Got it. Well, I think we're going to leave it there. We're, we've come to the end of our time. I want to thank you, Jan, for joining us. And I know yours is a voice that people will continue to hear as we weave our way through this recovery. As we close, really want to thank our clients around the world, both for joining this and also for being uh, such great clients of the firm. I think more than anything else, we wish you and your families and your friends safety and health at this time. Uh, and we will stay in touch and come back to you with more calls like this one in the days and weeks ahead. Thanks, everybody. That concludes this episode of Exchanges at Goldman Sachs. Thanks for listening. And if you enjoyed it, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave a rating or a comment. We hope everyone has a safe and healthy long weekend. This podcast was recorded on April 9th, 2020. All price references and market forecasts correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the listener. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast, and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.